The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash, and I'm joined again with Kim Vanette. She is a pro big mountain skier from Revelstoke, British Columbia, and she's also a geologist. We talked to her last time about how her skiing career led her to make the switch from oil and gas to renewables. This week, we're going to talk a little bit more about renewables and particularly geothermal. Hinton is in Alberta, a few hours west of Edmonton in the Rockies. It may end up being Canada's first geothermal heating system in a downtown core. Kim works for Epoch Energy, and they're proposing to use an abandoned gas well to gather heat from the already drilled depths to heat municipal buildings. It works by pumping the 120 degrees Celsius water deep below our surface and using it to heat another type of liquid with a greater heat capacity, such as glycol, that's sent by pipelines into buildings, and then the warm water is sent back to the well so it doesn't deplete the well. One study has run the numbers for the hospital, the RCMP detachment, 12 public buildings, schools, and government offices. The $10.2 million cost would be paid back in 16 years at current natural gas prices. The town would also cut its CO2 emissions by about 4,000 tons a year. Hinton Mayor Rob Mackin is on board with the project and is working with Epic Energy to make this dream possible. I asked Kim to describe geothermal and the differences she found working in renewables compared to oil and gas. Geothermal energy is a renewable energy source. There's enough heat in the earth to last us 5 billion years. And I mean, the sun's going to go out before that. So we're going to have bigger problems (laughs) if we're even here to deal with that. Um, Maybe that's short-sighted, but it's short-sighted on a pretty long scale. (laughs) Anyways, um, geothermal energy to me is a better source of producing energy than oil and gas, but we're using the same methods. So the difference too is that you're sort of on a bit of a treadmill with oil and gas because you drill a well, you bring the production on really high, and then it dwindles out. When you're dealing with geothermal energy with a properly maintained reservoir, there are places on Earth where the same well has been producing for over 130 years. So you don't get on that treadmill. You know, there's the first time we bring a drilling rig into some remote town in British Columbia, I think it's going to turn a few heads. But part of what I'd like to do is, is continue to green those processes. So make those drilling rigs not quite so scary, you know, and, and not use a whole lot of diesel and not cut down a whole lot of trees. You know, if somebody wants to get on that process, I think that's a really good idea. But uh, anyways, if we do drill wells for geothermal access, like I said, we're not going to have to come in a year later and drill another one and six months later and drill another one. And, you know, things aren't going to get so out of control. Iceland, the U.S., Mexico, and even Kenya are using much more geothermal than Canada, which is easy considering we aren't using it at all. You can use it for direct heating, electricity generation, and heat exchange systems. 
So Reykjavik, a northern city entirely heated using geothermal direct heating systems, pipes 27 kilometers of hot water into the city from the country's biggest geothermal energy plant and circulates it throughout the city for district heating. Iceland has greenhouses in the Arctic, which is something that Canada's indigenous and northern populations could definitely benefit from, considering the astronomical cost of getting healthy and affordable food up to our great white north. Communities such as Boise and Idaho use geothermal to melt snow off streets, which is something that almost every Canadian city has a need for in the wintertime. Any industry that needs heat water can do it using carbon-free earth heat, even the oil sands. My job right now, uh, we're focusing mostly on thermal energy. And a big reason for that is, like I was saying, when we're talking about um, wasting energy and efficiencies, basically any time that you transfer from one type of energy to another, you're losing efficiency. So if you're going certainly from electrical energy to heat energy, you're cutting your efficiencies down to less than a fifth. So you're losing a lot of energy that you don't need to be losing. So actually in the oil and gas industry, we're losing a lot of heat energy. And that's something that's being created anyways. So geothermal energy is the energy that's created with from within the earth. It's the heat energy that's created from within the earth. Heat is created by uh, breakdown of radioactive minerals that naturally exist in the rocks in our earth. Right. Uh, and then it's also conducted from core of the earth as well, which we know is very hot. The thermal energy would be would be using the oil and gas industry, and that's why there's a difference between geothermal and essentially thermal energy. When we drill wells for oil and gas, some of them are really deep in the oil and gas industry. A lot of the reservoirs that we're accessing are three kilometers or more deep. And when you go down into the earth even that far, there is inherently heat that's created. And so we're accessing that heat. But think of any sort of oil and gas operation that you see in the news or that you see firsthand. There's a lot of steam produced and there's a lot of heat. There's a lot of times you see pipelines with green grass growing in the middle of winter. That's because there's a lot of heat there. And the heat right now, we're just letting that dissipate into the atmosphere and, and I guess out into space, really. But we can harness that heat and use it. So the company that I'm working with, Epoch Energy, we're using abandoned oil and gas wells that are now producing water. And that water is very hot for the same reason. So when we bring that hot water to surface, what we're doing is using that hot water and running it through a district energy system. So think of your... HVAC system in your home or your ventilation system in your home, we're doing the same thing on a community scale. Instead of taking heat from your furnace and transferring it to each room in your home, what we're doing is we're taking heat from the hot water that's being produced in these oil and gas wells and we're transferring it to different buildings throughout towns. So these are essentially abandoned wells that aren't being used anymore. I mean, some of them are, some of them are. The, the thing that happens with oil and gas wells is that because water is more dense than both oil and gas, um, if there's water in the reservoir, the water is preferentially produced. So as, you, as you're producing oil and gas, the water kind of moves through the reservoir more quickly towards the wellbore. And so we just say the wells are watering out. And at that point, it becomes really difficult for oil and gas companies to access that reservoir that they intended to drill to in the first place. Uh, and that's that's one of the reasons that in the oil and gas industry, we need to keep drilling wells and keep drilling wells and keep drilling wells because there's a decline. When you first drill a well, it comes on production with a, a very high, very high pressures and flow rates and this sort of thing. And then over time, the amount that you can produce from that single well decreases. 
So for oil and gas companies to maintain the production that they need to bring to market, they need to just drill more wells and more wells and more wells. So you get yourself on a bit of a treadmill, and that um, certainly affects the environmental footprint that we're seeing in the oil and gas industry, and it certainly affects the amount of consumption of, of land and other resources that we're seeing in that industry. Are there any negative consequences to having so many wells drilled around British Columbia? Yes, there's so many different things that are affected by oil and gas drilling. Um, a big one for the industry is um, indigenous land. There's a lot of traditional lands, in, especially out west, but entirely throughout Canada. And each company has to make an agreement with the indigenous peoples of the area to make sure that they're conducting themselves in a way that everyone is comfortable with. Uh, so that becomes complicated. And then certainly... Like I said, there's forestry issues. There's also endangered species, both on the plant and animal scale. We don't drill in city limits right now, and hopefully we don't ever. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to how oil and gas is produced. Uh, it's certainly less than ideal in a lot of circumstances. Lately, the type of consulting work that I've been doing is I've been working with remote communities. Um, so communities that are further away from our power sources or any sort of energy source and looking at the resources that they have in place and trying to model each scenario based on availability. Alberta has thousands of oil and gas wells that offer many possibilities. Kangea mapping indicates there are about 5,000 megawatts of geothermal in BC. And for comparison, the site C Dam that you may have heard of is projected to have about a fifth of that capacity. Geothermal has five times the potential that this one site C dam has. 660 megawatts of geothermal would result in over a thousand permanent jobs, which is about 15 times more than the site C dam would provide. There's a BC Hydro spokesman who said that Site C offers the best deal for British Columbians, and if the project is terminated, he threatened there would be a price for taxpayers of $3 billion with nothing to show for it. A couple of things with regards to building new dams. At this point, there are other energy sources that are as green or even more efficient in a lot of senses. So they're talking about building some really big dams out in British Columbia. That's interesting, but at this point, there are other options that might be a lot more efficient just due to the scale of the particular dam they're trying to build right now. Um, another interesting thing is that it influences the availability of agricultural lands. Upstream of the dam, a lot of lands are becoming flooded, and then downstream of the dams, access to that same fresh water has changed quite a bit. So it certainly changes the ecosystems that are existing on either side of the dam. And, you know, as you go to a larger scale dam, the scale of those changes in ecosystems is just exasperated. There are a few problems with dams. While it seems obvious that nutrients flow downstream, they also move upstream when aquatic life swim on their own and through the food chain. Scientists are having difficulty finding sturgeon in BC rivers that are under 30 years of age in the Columbia River Basin, and this has them worried. Sturgeons have remained unchanged for the last 175 million years. Their size and appearance make them a West Coast marvel and tourist attraction. They can be as long as a school bus and live for over 100 years. 
Dams harm sturgeon populations by trapping nutrients, blocking access to traditional spawning grounds, eliminating flooding that creates new spawning areas, and the decreased water flow coming out of dams makes it calmer and easier for predators to find and consume juvenile sturgeon. Since the Libby Dam in Montana was established in 1974, sturgeons in that river basin have not been able to breed successfully. No breeding equals extinction. In university, I remember reading a paper that predicted in order for sturgeon to thrive, they likely need nutrients that come from the ocean. But when dams block that upstream flow of nutrients into the interior watershed, it spells disaster for fish species like the white sturgeon. Over the summer, I visited the Revelstoke Dam and took the tour. I love to see how things work in person, so I thought the tour was actually really great. But I was super disappointed when I asked the tour guide, where are the fish ladders? Fish ladders, although hardly even a band-aid on the problem that is damming rivers, allows a species or two to bypass the dam. The Revelstoke Dam tour guide told me that there isn't a fish ladder because the dam already in place upstream didn't have one, so they didn't see the point. It's likely these dams along the Columbia River Basin will cause the white sturgeon to go extinct. While the U.S. is currently in the business of blowing up dams and freeing rivers, up here in Canada we actually propose more and more dams on our rivers. British Columbia, for example, our electricity comes from 93% renewable resources because of these dams. 89% of that is hydroelectric power. Um, so that's really great. But hydro creates electricity, and electricity is, uh, though very abundant in British Columbia, changing from electricity to heat actually drops our efficiencies by a lot. So you actually need a lot of electricity in order to produce a little bit of heat. And, and you, you can see in Ontario how much, how costly that can be. The dams are detrimental in a lot of ways. So we're moving towards other types of energy. So be that solar, wind, geothermal, biomass, that sort of thing is dependent on the location right now. But energy evolves with the technology. Right. And you're right. It totally is dependent on the location because if you're in a sunny area, you know, then photovoltaic would be an answer. But in a lot of places in British Columbia, it's like it's dark and rainy or snowy and cloudy, you know, yeah. so you we, get, have we have quite... a 14% chance of sunshine in Revelstoke in the wintertime. Yeah, that's, that's uh... low. You can't put, you can't run your house on, on that. No. <laughs> the best choices for the future are going to depend on technology and our access so, Kim, do you have any recommendations going forward for zero wasters who want to do the best thing possible and reduce their waste in terms of energy? If we're talking about garbage, the garbage creator in the energy industry is going to be solar voltaic cells. You're going to be getting rid of batteries and you're going to be getting rid of old cells. And as these things become more efficient in the future, you're just going to kind of power through more and more. You're creating a lot of waste by using solar. I think the thing that people don't understand is once the solar cells are, say, on your roof in your home, you're pretty self-sufficient at that point, but there's a big process that goes into getting them there. There's a big process that happens after the fact. Is there any chance of recycling them in the future? Yeah, that's something that people are working on, certainly. Yep, hopefully. Hopefully you'll be able to upgrade them. Hopefully there'll be less and less waste because it is in certain areas of the world, it can be extremely powerful and extremely efficient. But uh, that's one of the biggest things they're working on in that particular industry. Yeah, solar is interesting for a lot of reasons. We, um, we're still developing the technology 
And so we're actually only getting about 14 percent electric, uh, electrical efficiency from these solar voltaic cells that are that exist. By comparison, hydro gives about an 89 percent efficiency. Oh wow! So not only are we not getting great efficiencies in a place like China, that's where a lot of the, the photovoltaic cells come from. Um, so they have a lot of access to those. But I mean, when we're talking about zero waste, we kind of get into this area of these solar panels have a lifespan, generally about 20 years. But if you're only getting 14% efficiency, what are you going to do in that 20 years? As the efficiency becomes better, are you going to probably ditch your solar panels and get new ones? Or are you going to kind of stick with what you have, stick out the 20 years and get really low efficiencies? I mean, it's sort of a moral debate, but that's, so that's one side of it. For me, the more important side of it is that because it's an intermittent power source, because you can only gather power when the sun's out, you have to store it somewhere. So storing it in batteries uh, is your best option right now. And depending on the type of battery, you can certainly get ones that are sort of more inexpensive that last up to five years, or you can get bigger, more expensive batteries that last the life of your photovoltaic cell. But the big thing for me is where are these heavy metals coming from that are going into all these batteries? I mean, it's super interesting that we're using electricity instead of oil and gas, but if we look ethically at how oil and gas is produced versus how these heavy metals are produced throughout the world and where are we getting these heavy metals from, it becomes sort of an interesting moral debate as to really what are you prioritizing? Are you prioritizing emissions or are you prioritizing human rights and later on waste and garbage? I would assume that a large amount of oil and gas is probably used in the production of photovoltaic cells yeah, for sure. Production and transportation, because like I said, China yeah. is the biggest producer of PV cells right now. So, you I mean, these cells that we're using in Canada are largely coming from across the planet. I'm gathering that it's probably best that we still use dams, but it would be really nice if they had fish ladders, perhaps a combination of hydro and then as well as um, harnessing the thermal energy for the heat sources. Right. So that's kind of what makes what I'm doing appealing to me right now. That's what's drawing me in this direction is uh, knowing what I know about different energy sources and looking at this scheme of energy distribution. I'll talk about British Columbia because that's where I'm that's where I am and that's where I'm working. I'm also working in Alberta and uh, the Yukon. Right now I'll just talk about British Columbia. We have a lot of small remote towns. It's a little bit different than Ontario where everything's kind of set up along the 401 corridor. In British Columbia we're really really spread out so when we look at the hydroelectric grid there's your main corridors but there's a lot of small remote communities that don't have access to those larger electrical lines, so the, the transmission lines. So we're focusing on these smaller communities and creating energy at a smaller scale is sort of interesting because I think all of these sources, well, a lot of these sources anyways, become more economic at larger and larger scales. Mm -hmm. So I'm not even interested in providing energy to the larger centers, but my work in working with the smaller centers should strengthen those larger centers as well because instead of transmitting their power elsewhere they can kind of keep it close to home. Absolutely. So that sort of ties into biomass because I believe that you did work on a biomass project or you're going to work on a biomass project? And like I said we focus on thermal energy. Um, this journey for me started with geothermal energy but I'm not biased when it comes to energy sources and I'm just finding that depending on the location 
there are other sources available. And one thing that is interesting in British Columbia is the large amount of wood waste that are available because of our extremely extensive uh, forestry industry here. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a lot of places, basically anywhere that you have a timber mill, they have wood waste that they need to deal with. I spent 11 heartbreaking years traveling around Vancouver Island alongside forestry clearcuts. I spent my free time while I was in university and later in the Navy, driving to what I called Up Island, a paradise for whitewater kayakers, hikers, surfers, campers, and explorers such as myself. But those logging roads that gave me access to this paradise were created by the forestry industry. The island looks like someone took hair clippers and shaved patches into someone's head, and it's a disturbing landscape. When the forestry industry has taken all the viable timber from a plot of clear-cut land, there are scraps and waste left. This is what can be used to create biomass energy. Biomass has a huge environmental footprint. Yeah, it's like... Is that due to emissions? No, it's due to the sheer amount of land. I'm not talking about emissions at all. I'm talking about the, the, the number of square kilometers it takes to produce a, a terawatt hour of energy. Biofuel or biomass, using biomass to create biofuel, takes up 810 kilometers square per terawatt hour. For example, to contrast that, geothermal energy takes up five, five kilometers squared versus 810 kilometers squared, just to kind of give you a few little comparisons, which is a large reason we're using petroleum products is because we can access it without doing a whole lot of damage. But like I said, we have to continually access that. So over the course of the sheer amount of energy that we've created in Canada, we are actually bit by bit making a huge environmental footprint. However, if that land has already been exploited and used for timber, then it makes sense from a zero waste perspective to use that land for biomass production. So in terms of Canada as a whole, do you think that thermal and hydro are sort of our best options going forward into the future on sort of this countdown that I've put myself on? If you were to put us as a country on a countdown to 2050, what do you think the best solution to energy would look like? If we're, if we're prioritizing renewable resources, we have a lot of hydro throughout the country. Um, but we're also seeing an upcoming uh, shortage of availability of new hydro sources. Basically, all of our viable rivers are becoming dammed and they've already been accessed. Um, so there will be sort of a transition into something else uh, inherently. I mean, there was a time that we used whale blubber for heating. And uh, and we realized that that wasn't going to work. And we started using petroleum. And there is a social movement away from that type of resource. The same thing is going to exist for hydro. And the same thing will exist for all of these things in the future as technology develops. So um, it's just, it's an evolution right now. And I think we're moving towards... I'm certainly moving towards thermal energy sources right now, and who knows what will happen in the future. There's a lot of crazy talk about magnetics and free energy. <laughs> One day, that could be really cool. It's not an option right now, but so right now we have to work with the best thing that we have, which, like I said off the bat, it's, it's certainly uh, location-dependent, but uh, I'm, I'm favoring thermal energy. Alberta has no legal structures for owning heat, a system to encourage oil and gas producers to transfer end-of-life wells to geothermal producers still needs to be developed. 
There are currently no tax benefits for geothermal, but there are for oil and gas and even some other renewables. So it's basically this this literally untapped resource that uh, that could really reduce our waste production. A lot of it has to do with our government policy, and it makes a lot of sense that our policy favors oil and gas because we've been producing oil and gas in Canada for almost 100 years. So in that span of time, we've become very familiar with the process, and we've changed our laws and changed policy and regulation to the extent that it's actually produced very efficiently these days. That's awesome. That's exactly what we should expect. The same thing goes for hydroelectricity in British Columbia. I imagine that the government can't just snap their fingers and say, okay, we're going to decide that Canada is going to be green. I mean, there are private companies from all over the world that are invested in the oil and gas industry. And if nobody has the capital or the, the business sense to try and get in on these renewables, or if it isn't efficient or profitable, how are we ever going to make that change? It seems that we have some hot spots here in Canada in the mountains that we could really be using it a lot more than we are now. So is there anything that the government sort of can do to encourage that? Yeah, I mean, companies like Epoch, we're working with the energy regulators and we're working with utility commissions to kind of pilot these projects and start new methods. And so certainly over time, no matter who it is that does that, we'll start to develop these regulations. It's just that they haven't been defined yet. Fortunately, Canada does have some of the best regulation in the world. Um, one thing that we have that some other countries don't is a base of groundwater protection. So basically, from every known freshwater aquifer that we have, which we know about a lot of them at this point due to the scale of drilling that we've already done in Canada, you're not allowed to drill within a certain distance of the base of these known aquifers. It's comforting to hear that in Canada, we value and protect our groundwater, even if we are damming so many of our rivers. Besides dams and geothermal, there was one means of renewable energy production Kim and I hadn't talked about, but that we see looming over many Canadian landscapes. Wind. I've read that wind isn't actually that efficient. Physically looking at the turbines themselves, as the wind is blowing through the turbines, only 45% of the wind actually physically hits the turbines. So right there, you're cutting the efficiency in half. To be able to turn those turbines and create a decent amount of electricity, you need at least eight meters per second of wind power. You, you just need a lot of wind in order to make that happen. So places that that happens is offshore or it's up in the mountains in our alpine environment. So not only is do we need a, a huge and large space in order to collect the amount of wind that's necessary to create energy. We're also doing it in fairly fragile environments, which actually incidentally has nothing to do with the carbon footprint, the environmental footprint that I mentioned. Um, but it is interesting in addition to the environmental footprint, not only is it a large environmental footprint, but it's a large environmental footprint, which is impacting very fragile spaces. Offshore, it can be a little bit easier to manage, but certainly, as we're seeing with hurricanes this time of year, those spaces can be very volatile as well, so maintenance in those areas can be very difficult. 
After speaking with Kim, I've come to realize that energy production is incredibly destructive and everything that we do, whether it's turning on the lights or turning on our heat or air conditioning or plugging in our phone, it all takes a lot of power that somewhere is destroying the environment on various levels. So we're basically trying to choose here which ones are the best and geothermal especially in Canada, has such potential to be an amazing source of heat for especially British Columbians and Albertans. This week on my own countdown to zero waste, I turned my thermostat down by one degree, despite the minus 10 degrees Celsius weather outside, and I've actively made sure that every light we're not using in our home is turned off. Thank you for joining us on this geothermal episode. It's important to know where our energy comes from and what we're using in our everyday lives. Next week, we're going to be joined by a couple who gave up those amenities of electricity and power for six months and hiked the entire Pacific Crest Trail. They're going to be talking to us about zero waste and how the trail changed their lives. Next time on the Zero Waste Countdown podcast. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.